Welcome to Reroute. This is Gavin Wilhite. Today, we get to speak with Sean Faircloth. Sean is a politician and a writer from the great state of Maine, where he has served both as a state senator as well as the mayor of the city of Bangor. He also served as the executive director of the Secular Coalition for America and is the director of strategy and policy at the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science. He's also done some amazing work in the nonprofit sector and even founded a science museum. In this conversation, we cover a number of critical issues, including how to promote secular values in government, what sort of political lessons and wisdom we can take from the past, and maybe most critically of all, we talk about whether or not there's a place in politics for you, no matter how weird you may think that you are. So sit forward, listen in, and enjoy our conversation with Sean Faircloth. I'm here today with Sean Faircloth. Hi, Sean. Welcome. Great to be with you. Wonderful to have you on here. Uh, so Sean is a man of many talents. Um, he is an author. He was a state senator in Maine for a number of years. I believe you were the majority whip. Is that right? Yeah, I was majority whip in the Maine House of Representatives. Yes. That's awesome. Uh, and cares deeply and has done a lot of uh, really useful legislation around uh, the environment, mental health, uh, children well-being, secular values, um, and many, many great stuff. I, I was first introduced to you, Sean, through your book, Attack of the Theocrats, uh, which was, oh, uh, uh, yeah, it was the first book I ever bought on Audible. So uh, that <laughs> that is... Uh, well, I had fun recording it. <laughs> did you really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You did the audiobook. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that was, uh, so for anybody who hasn't read it, it is a... Uh, I think the thing that was the most impactful for me on that was just painting how, you, you know, sometimes you think about these conversations about, you know, secular values and religion and all these kinds of things as very sort of theoretical, philosophical conversations. Uh, but there you really painted a powerful picture for how uh, these values are important just for human well-being. Um, and uh, you maybe you can give us just a couple thoughts about how you think about this or how you've thought about this in your career. But it seemed like you really have been looking at like how do uh, some of these uh, sort of bad laws or sort of bad practices coming from sort of the religious right uh, are sort of like hurting people in the U.S. Can right. you speak to that just um, a tiny bit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes think people think of it as more of an abstract issue, but uh, the religious exemptions and uh, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, who could be against that, has such a nice pretty name. But in fact, it does things that really can lead to harm in American society at a federal level. Uh, and for instance, I used to be an assistant attorney general uh, doing uh, child protective work. And uh, there would be exemptions uh, throughout the United States. It's, you know, it's a Swiss cheese, depends on your jurisdiction, uh, where there will be exemptions from uh, regular laws that everybody would kind of normally expect from child abuse and neglect or for schools when they are religious. And you're thinking, well, why is that the case? Seems to me you should uh, apply that standard equally. And obviously most of us in, in popular culture are now aware of this issue of, you know, so-called religious freedom to uh, discriminate against gay people or not sell them a cake or <laughs> something along these lines. But really, you know, it's, it's, uh, often used as an, uh, an authoritative basis for doing something that's really harmful to others. Uh, to me, uh, 
Um, the rules should apply equally across the board. That was uh, a distinctive nature of the American uh, founding. Mm-hmm. Um, this country was the first place where they said uh, there will be separation of church and state, and it was revolutionary and positive. And, and I want to caution by saying, I'm not saying this out of hostility to, there's all different kinds of religions, all different kinds of religious people, many of whom do very many wonderful and positive things. And I, so I'm not hostile to uh, the concept of whatever religious belief you want to embrace. But when you bring that into American law, as we see, it can be uh, uh, of great concern. And you know, one of the areas I raised was childcare, where kids are, are severely neglected, or parents who get to neglect their children dis- distinctly in healthcare ways because of religion. Well, it's not the child's fault, and they shouldn't experience the punishment. But more significantly, since I, I wrote that book, or I wouldn't say more significantly, but just ominously, is uh, we've seen since I wrote that book, the development of what I think is sort of out of the closet authoritarianism from the Christian right. I mean, you know, a statistic that's really meaningful to me is that 31% of white evangelical Republicans rate most as mostly true or completely true some of the allegations of QAnon that Trump is in a, a war against some cabal of Democrats and, and Hollywood people that are involved in pedophilia. 31%. That, what, you know, obviously, this is not something that has any basis in reality, but it does have a basis in a great strategy, if you like, authoritarianism. And, and it's, it's growing significantly. And it has nothing to do with what you'd read on the on the page of, of Christian scripture, but there you have it. Yes, it is. It, it is. Um, it's interesting to see how some of those beliefs uh, bleed into each other. Uh, or when you sort of take certain things for granted, it makes it easier to get stuck Donald in some of Trump, these spaces. The guy who pays off process. I'm, I don't judge people's intimate lives so long as it's consenting adults, but somebody who's you know paying hush money to a prostitute, is this really what they mean by fundamentalist Christian values? And it comes to a point where you have to say, with a certain sector of the Christian right, they do not care about some of the things they say they care about, but they do like a strong authoritarian power. Yeah, it's true. I will, without getting too far off topic here, I will say that it is somewhat mind-blowing to me the degree to which uh, Donald Trump hits literally every single note of what the Antichrist <laughs> would be hitting, <laughs> and, and yet how that is not doesn't seem to be seen or talked about. Like they literally had a golden cow statue of him uh, at the, right. the CPAC. Beautifully yeah. done, beautifully oh done. Oh my god, no, not really. It is, uh, yeah, it's 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 on the CPAC convention. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, before we get too too far down the road of forty five, uh, let's uh, talk just a little bit about um, you know I think there's there's two main things that. Uh, I think it'd be really interesting for us to hit today. And, you know, one is, as we're sort of talking about here, this, it seems like there are some potentially bad paths that we can go down here where we fall more into uh, theocracy, more into authoritarianism. We, we sort of touched a little bit on how there's a difference between, um, you know, uh, people having, you know, freedom uh, to believe what they want and to support people in their uh, sort of spiritual and religious uh, uh, sort of uh, interests, while also it being a really important uh, concept of of not letting that bleed into um, government, right, and, and and sort of the use of force by the state uh, and sort of enforcement of religious laws. 
And so I think we'll talk a little bit about that and how we make sure, I know you have some really interesting 10 point plans and stuff like that for how we can uh, potentially avoid that. Um, and then the second thing that we'll hit uh, on the second half of the podcast is what we can really do to help encourage uh, this generation, this sort of upcoming generation uh, of professionals uh, and just people around the country to get involved in politics. Uh, I really and, hope they would. We yeah. need it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's keep going a little bit into this theocracy. And, you know, I'm curious, you know, there, there's there's a bunch of stuff to talk around here. I, I remember I, I you've talked about your 10 step plan. Is that still the steps that you feel like we need to be taking? Well, I think there are principles really of uh, what we need to embrace in American life that are really based in the American founding. When all these people wave the flag, which is fine, but what are we waving the flag about? And to me, the Bill of Rights is central to that, and separation of church and state is is the new and, and really distinctly, at the time, revolutionary and positive idea that came uh, from the American uh, founding. And yet we see religious exemptions literally in land use planning, environmental laws, things that just don't really uh, make sense. And another one that really uh, concerns me is with uh, religious bias in education law. So there'll be secular standards. And I don't mean uh, specifically, well, it includes specifically the topic of religion and treating that neutrally, but just a whole range of topics where uh, there are uh, whole curricula uh, with a lot of fundamentalist Christian schools that teach things that have to do with race and have to do with women's rights and with tax exemptions that can really uh, harm, uh, I think, the separation of church and state in this country. But also to me, it's not really being fair to the children uh, to use our tax dollars in any way uh, for that kind of undermining of, of say, women's rights or, or, or people of color. Uh, but you see that uh, quite commonly, uh, you know, written expressly in the curriculum. And uh, that to me is a, a great concern. But I do think it's part of a longer trend of authoritarianism. And I think in our country, uh, what we really need, and when you mentioned about getting people involved in, in public life, is I'd like to see more people who have an expressly scientific uh, viewpoint of how they analyze uh, public policy. I think uh, yep. the perception might be, oh, when you're in politics, you give big, I don't know, big speeches, windbaggy speeches. And, you know, unfortunately, there's something to that. But there have also been leaders who have articulated and made us passionate about reason. That, to me, I think is the great trick of representative government is uh, do you have leaders that can make you passionate about reason? Like uh, uh, with uh, Mr. Yang, our candidate yes. for mayor of New York now, uh, he's continuing what I think is a great uh, tradition. And I think it's one that you saw, uh, for example, from, from President Kennedy or from Abraham Lincoln, is that we're supposed to be the country where you are forced by reasoned process to come up with public policy rather than by sort of a tribalistic uh, viewpoint that unfortunately I, I fear or don't fear, I think in fact has, has come to the fore too much in American society in recent times. I appreciate that a lot. And, you know, one of the things that I've found, cause we talked a little bit about, about Yang briefly before recording. And I, I hadn't really thought of him championing, you know, secular values as much, um, because of the way that he presents himself. He doesn't really talk about things in that way, uh, but he, you know, his talk about evidence and data-driven policy and all that is so 100% supportive of those things. 
um, I, I appreciate you pointing that out. Cause, the math uh, pin, that to yes. me is how you should make decisions. You know, in 10 years in uh, the state legislature, and I come from a legal background, and I will say this in defense of the law that they are supposed to mm -hmm. uh, follow rules of reason and evidence. And I would often find uh, in the political discourse, surprise, surprise, that sometimes people would not use kind of evidence-based logical reasoning. Now, sometimes they would, and there'd be great advocates for that. Um, but I feel that instead, and, and I think uh, uh, Mr. Yang also uh, has, I think, the appropriate response to some of this, is that because of the great economic inequality, I mean, he's the one who you know, first was touting this uh, $1,000 a month uh, concept, but also keeping uh, money out of the political process because it has become increasingly the case that I think capitalism, which I, and in, in, by my definition, which I think is the Adam Smith definition of capitalism, I strongly favor capitalism, but that it's been undermined and the political process has been used as a tool to undermine really representative democracy so that you, you have a purchase of government that is really very much the same as the Gilded Age back in the late 1800s. And, you know, we need to, and I really was impressed with what Andrew Yang said, because I felt like he, he, as a business person was saying that that's not the route, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's so interesting because it does feel like we, uh, you know, just like how America was, you know, I'm going to get myself in trouble here because I'm sure some other places have done it. But in a lot of ways, you know, America was kind of uh, democracy 1.0 and, you know, we got to figure out how to slowly patch it and figure out what, what improvements we're going to make. And we've done that, you know, through a bunch of amendments. We have to do the same thing to capitalism, right? Exactly. Well, I think it should be more representative. And uh, we had that. I mean, a lot of the things that are working successfully in European nations were copied from this place called the United States. I mean, when you look back, uh, you know, in 1960, two out of three Americans uh, own their own homes. They could fill those homes with technology. Uh, and the standard of living that you saw in that period of time in the early 1960s and through to when the inflation kicked in uh, with the Vietnam War and uh, Watergate was the most widely distributed high standard of living that we've ever seen. And frankly, since that time, and I believe the high point uh, statistically was around January of 1973, it's moved ever and ever to greater inequality. And I don't think that's good for business either. I think it might be good for individual business people, uh, but not good for the uh, economy overall. And, and I think we've suffered great losses as a result of it. You need a common wheel where the average person feels like they have a stake yeah. and are not uh, checked out of, of society. And I think that runs across all races and colors uh, in a way that um, ultimately is corrosive uh, to the democratic system. And that's why I felt like Yang. And I'd say also, I agree with Bernie Sanders on some of this. We need to bring that stuff in. But to me, unlike some of my friends who are on the left side, who will kind of say, well, let's throw out capitalism. Well, I want their, I compliment and commend entrepreneurs who come up with a great idea and follow that idea through and it benefits society. Now, if you're selling cigarettes, I have a different view of that because that it may be capitalism, but it's not benefiting society. So I feel like there needs to be an ethical uh, form of capitalism, both in terms of how workers are treated, but also in terms of what is it you're producing? Are you producing something that's going to benefit society overall? And if so, I say, hey, get rich. You know, hundred percent. Yeah, it uh, and it's you know it's interesting. I don't 
I'm curious to hear because you in uh, the conversations that we've had, I, I really appreciate the sort of historical context you're able to give and sort of the uh, the people who've thought deeply on this in the past. I know, you know, right now the the concept that I've been trying to learn about is stakeholder capitalism, right? And just like how do we make sure that uh, you know shareholders are important, but they are one stakeholder amongst many, and how we prioritize all those needs and voices. Uh, and it seems like that in some ways. Um, was was more championed in the past, or, or was by different people? Um, can you? Uh, so you, you mentioned Adam Smith. Is is right. this someone who you feel like has a musical? He's concert? a hero of mine. And speaking nice. of of separation of church and state, so Adam Smith and David Hume. I encourage all of your listeners to go someday. Uh, to me, it's sort of like the mecca. You can touch David Hume's toe in this big statue, and everybody goes and <laughs> touches it there, up in Scotland. But he and Adam Smith were buddies, and they both believed in strong separation of church and state. And uh, a quote from Adam Smith that really sort of captures to me something that I think a lot of people who claim that they support Adam Smith would be perhaps shocked by. It goes like this, the subjects of every state ought to contribute toward the support of the government as nearly as possible in proportion to their respective abilities. That is in proportion to the revenue which they respectively enjoy under the protection of the state. So, you know, to a proportion to their respective abilities sounds like a phrase that a lot of people in their modern interpretation of Adam Smith uh, would reject, but that's not where he was coming from. He believed in entrepreneurship. Uh, He believed in a free market economy. But when you look at the economy today, do you have a free market economy? We certainly don't have a free market economy in China, although it's a, you know, it has aspects of a free market system, but in the end, there's an ultimate authority uh, with the government there that uh, limits people's uh, freedom. And unfortunately, I'd say in the United States, not in anything like the same way, but there's a reason there were antitrust laws. And I do worry as decades uh, proceed, you know, when Facebook does A-B testing and says, well, we can dial this uh, up and make people feel happy or dial this down and make right. people feel sad or provide more information to people that affects how they think about issues or feed them things that su- further support Uh, some viewpoint that that is an ominous uh, power uh, for a a non-effectively non-regulated entity to have, similar with the kind of power Google has and and Amazon. And that's nothing against them. I respect them in terms of they came up with an idea and they made a lot of money with it. I don't don't, uh, begrudge them that. But I think that in terms of how our society functions, Adam Smith would say, you know, like went back to his, you know, I think it was the nail factories. You needed a lot of nail factories. That was the point. <laughs> if you had only one or two, then then it didn't work. The free market system didn't work. The so-called invisible yeah. end. Well, you know, with Facebook in particular, the one that I just, uh, I, I'm amused because I feel like they would hate this so much. They would fight this tooth and nail. But the, I feel like the one thing that could possibly start to break the, like, I don't really care about breaking up the monopoly insofar as like the companies they've acquired, like that's part of it. But really what I love is if they had a live, like open API for their social graph that was regulated in some sense that other companies could pit like, because, you know, their lock-in is the network effects. It's nothing else, right? And so the only way that I feel like we're going to make these not a monopoly is if we're able to open up those networks. Um, Now, the the problem is that then you potentially get things like, uh, what was that company that, the people feel manipulated all the elections. Um, it was that UK oh, company. Yes. You mean they worked um, on Brexit and worked on 2016? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well. So you can get things like that. But fundamentally, I just think it's interesting that 
you need some technologists in the room on some of these conversations because uh, that if you're making a startup, that's the only way you can compete with Facebook is if you have that social graph. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And and I, I think the world that we live in today is just hard for people to conceive of, say, even a quarter of a century ago. Uh, but the people in elective office haven't adjusted. And really, uh, and from my own experience as well, um, the power of the lobbyist system uh, distorts the process for both political parties so significantly uh, and increasingly that it's hard to view ourselves as quite fully a democracy. I mean, we're, we're I would still say we're a democracy, but the influence of money is radically disproportionate. Uh, and, you know, the lobbying power is so dramatic um, that it's fundamentally changed the nature of how our system operates. I'd love to hear just a little bit, you know, because you you have firsthand now, uh, experience and knowledge of this. What is that like on the inside? I know I've heard in your speeches, you talk a little bit about how you've you know, you, you got lobbied a whole bunch by religious right folks coming through, but not a lot of secular individuals. And, you know, I'm just curious, what, like, what is that actually like on a day to day basis? How does that lobbying and influence actually happen? They certainly did have a steady the Christian right has steady presence. I will stay in the state of Maine. It's much different than if you sure. were in Alabama or Mississippi, yep. you know, those kinds of states. So it, this is one of the most secular states in the country. But nonetheless, they had a strong a steady presence. I mean, sometimes the ACLU or whatnot would speak out for separation of church and state issues uh, to their credit, but there wasn't that much of an organized uh, force uh, for that. But something I'd say sort of as a larger point that certainly concerned me is if you take the system that we've had now for, gosh, you know, uh, effectively since the time of Lincoln of two major political parties without uh, really variable choice like you have in the uh, parliamentary systems and most other democratized nations is, is uh, this situation of, of money's influence in politics on a whole range of issues. And I used to look at it this way. And in the Republican Party, effectively, I view them, uh, Mitch McConnell, his mission, is, that's his, his life mission, is to support whatever the moneyed interests say. That's his job. And, and, he, and he's an effective advocate uh, for that viewpoint. I don't view him as representing people. He represents uh, big money interests. You can see how he just looks at it as a game, like in the way that he interacts with people. Like, right. He, he definitely, and, and I don't know what's in his soul, but certainly he's a smart tactician and he's someone who works for the, the highest end corporate power. And of course, his wife uh, and their family uh, benefited handsomely from their interactions in the, in, in the Trump administration when she was in uh, the Trump administration. So one hand uh, washes the other. But even in uh, state legislatures, which are often neglected, partly because the newspapers are dying. And so back when I first was you know, like legal counsel of the state Senate decades ago, it was um, there was more on the ground, feet in the ground, uh, newspaper reporters digging around or news reporters digging around. And it's less and less. And that trend is true in all the different states. So back to the Democratic Party for a second, they would be more, I guess you'd call it balanced uh, in terms of representing the interests of environmental groups or women's rights groups or you know people of color, LGBTQ, all of that. But I always viewed it when it came to economic issues, that the difference between the Republicans and the Democrats is that the Republicans listened only to the economic, uh, the people of, of the very wealthy, while the Democrats kind of give equal time. Like when you had the meetings and leadership, they would give equal time so that the, the 1% would get equal time with the 99%, if you will. And I feel like that's not really a, there's a fair uh, ratio when 1% is 1%. 
And that's where I share some of, of uh, the viewpoints of, of Andrew uh, Yang. You can't really have a, a really successful market economy if you don't have a big uh, middle class. Yeah. And, and we're losing that. Yeah, I love and, and just coming back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier with sort of economic freedom and like you, you look at these. Um, I really love his branding of the freedom dividends because that that, you know, both if you get some freedom dividends and you fix healthcare, you open up so much option for entrepreneurship. You know, like it takes both confidence that you're going to be healthy and stay healthy and that you'll be able to feed yourself. And if you can do that, we would just see such a beautiful explosion of entrepreneurship and you know creativity. I, yeah, I really hope that that happens. Well, I think it's just uh, logical for the forward motion of society and that we are so much further behind. I don't really care the method. I mean, I, I, there's methods I might support over other methods, but what I know is in modern industrialized societies, they've already addressed uh, healthcare one way or the mm-hmm. other in a way that's superior uh, to what we face. Ours is very expensive. Doesn't really, it's not fiscally conservative, <laughs> you know, that, it is the farthest from that you can imagine, kind of, yeah, but that's kind of the, the theoretical reason that we've had all this opposition for many decades. Yeah. Um, which it, it worries me because I, I think it's touch and go. Um, you know, if you look over the decades from say in, in, uh, California in the early, uh, part of the 20th century when they started coming up with political consulting firms. Again, big money um, providing simple messages that aren't necessarily true, but they're simple, is a highly effective way to affect the populace. And then when you add uh, the uh, digital um, innovations to that kind of process, then you, I worry anyway that the uh, democratic system can survive. You know, in in the, you know, you look at here in Poland, uh, democracy was there. It's faded. Hungary, democracy faded. Turkey. So this is a real issue. It's a real concern. And so we need to elect people that are going to bring us back to what I would call sort of a a mixed uh, free market economy uh, and one that rejects the cul-de-sac where people are are sort of plunking down their uh, resentments and authoritarian viewpoints, which is oftentimes... uh, Sad but true is sort of the the fundamentalist right or the hard right of any religion in a country. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence in Russia and the Eastern Orthodox Church very aligned with Putin. Sure. Uh, in Turkey, Erdogan, you know, you have uh, religious entities that that uh, support his viewpoint. I don't think either one of them, Putin or Erdogan, gives that much of a hoot <laughs> sure. about the religious perspective involved. But if it can help them maintain authoritarian power, then what a useful tool. Right. Yeah. It's it's interesting because it's it's a yeah, it seems like a um, partnership of convenience due to the utilization and expertise in using certain tools and authoritarian tactics, right? And we have limited time. I mean, the other thing that worries me that I always feel like I need to say this whenever I interview with anyone is about climate change. Like, I'm not a scientist, I don't claim, but I feel like I read a lot of different scientists on this topic. And even if they're half right, <laughs> yeah, we're facing some trouble here. Mm-hmm. You know, some serious, like, we need like a World War II organized response, you know, like yes. Roosevelt at the beginning of World War II. And so far, we've had concern, and, and I understand the limitations and the difficulties in modern politics and the cloture vote and all of this. But I kind of wish that Barack Obama, I was an early Barack Obama supporter, but I kind of wish he'd given that clarion speech that said, 
hey, Americans, we have an obligation here. And if we don't meet this obligation, we may not be able to go back. We may not be able to reverse this. And the time is very short. I mean, I'm trying to think other than potentially, you know, when when Kennedy was speaking right after the Cuban Missile Crisis and saying we should have a nuclear test ban treaty, what was so serious a threat? You know, World War II, uh, maybe the nuclear, but it, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, when they just project what could happen with, with climate change, time is limited and the action needed is is massive. It's like World War II scale. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting how these things play together, right? Because in order to like, in order to address climate change, oftentimes you have to start looking at capitalism. And then when you're looking at capitalism, you have to look at government, right? And so you have to figure out what are the, all the levers that we can pull on these things to start getting these systems in such a way where when people are making individual rational decisions, they're incentivized to do the right thing, right? Right. And everybody has to be invested. It's mm-hmm. like me, if I, I don't have it, but if, you know, people, I'd like to, you know, give money away, you know, pass away, give it to the next generation of my family. But in our country, about 60% of private wealth is held by people who inherited it. Right. And I have nothing against people who inherit money, but when you're getting up to into this millions and millions of dollars, other nations, they just tax some of it and say, all right, we're going to make sure kids are educated. We're going to make sure there's healthcare. We're going to get these kind of things covered. And to me, it's, it's the opposite. If you go back to the founders, Jefferson and the rest, they, that's exactly what they didn't want. They would have called it landed gentry, but they didn't want to have people who didn't really need to work, who were controlling so much of the capital of a country that the individual entrepreneurial spirit that everybody says they like is actually harmed. They, you know, you want to say, let's have a lot of flowers bloom through entrepreneurship, also through creativity and nonprofits, creativity in the arts. But I feel like that is stifled to some degree. Uh, and, and that's certainly what the American founders thought. Yeah, They didn't want a bunch of people sitting on money, rent seekers, as they would call it. Absolutely. Well, and it, it really touches upon a lot of assumptions uh, sort of assumed frames that have been baked into our society and culture where like you think about these questions, uh, somebody asked an interesting question recently, which was like, does JK Rowling deserve all the money that she made? Right. And you know, your knee jerk reaction is yes, of course she did this. She sold, you know, she put all this creative work in there. But if you just step back and you're like, well, let me question all of my assumptions. Like, does it make sense that, you know, somebody owns all of the money that the system was able to generate based on their inputs into it. Um, it seems like we really have to step back and start asking those questions about what does the concept of deserve even mean? And like, why, like, why do we care about setting these things up the way that we do? You know what I mean? I may have this statistic wrong, but I think around mid 20th century, the executive of a corporation on average has you know, maybe 20 times the income of their worker. And now I forget what it is, but something crazy. A thousand or something, yeah. Yeah, and and to me, you know, it, 20 times is pretty good. All right, 30, I can go with that. But there's a certain point where you say, all right, there's that's yeah. proportionate enough. And, you know, we reward people who uh, come up with innovative ideas, but then they're, they're, uh, come, we need to come away with some form of limit. And I don't think, unless we do, I don't think we're going to address this climate change issue. Like you say, these these concerns are, are tied together. Yep. And uh, I, I feel like a big blanket that's thrown over it through uh, education and society is this issue of the f- fact that you're almost, uh, you're required, and this gets back to you getting, uh, getting more people to run for office, that somehow you're supposed to do this big nod and bow 
to religion. I bow to your right to have your religion. I accept you can believe anything you want, including things that I'm opposed to. But when it's done through government, I have a big concern with that in terms of the very nature of our society. And uh, it's worrisome. I mean, you know, this thing with uh, the the secret cabal of, of high Democrats and, and pedophiles and, and Hollywood people, and that's some pretty nutty stuff. Yeah. Yet, apparently, millions in the United States give credence uh, to something that really sounds like, you know, tinfoil hat kind of stuff. Yeah. And this is what happens when you don't value or teach epistemology, right? Like, how do you know what is true when, you, when one's faculties for, for judging that are not up to snuff, you, you get drawn down a lot of really dark places. Yeah. Well, it, it, it uh, I, I think it's touch and go in terms of how that plays out because it, there's, it's in human nature uh, to be uh, comfortable and I think maybe, or I fear maybe, that the modern, unlike Trump actually, but the modern sophisticated authoritarian says, we'll get you enough so you feel somewhat, you know, like you've got material things, you've got a place to live, you're not, like I, I sometimes think that's where China is, is they say, well, they'll accept that they don't have freedom because they've got, you know, a lot more than they used to have, which is true, you know, for most of the Chinese, not all and terrible oppression that occurs there. But compared to the horrible economic situation they had earlier, looking better. So yep. when you say to yourself, well, I'll, I'll accept that, or I'm not going to be the one to fight, let's put it that way, the, the, the lack of freedom. And China's not joking around. You know, they're, yeah. they're looking to really throw their weight around, partly in a way that if you're living in Africa right now and China's investing in you, uh, you could see where, why shouldn't you uh, seek and accept uh, help from, from China? Yeah. And, and where does that ultimately leave our society? I mean, I always have hope that with the American society, that's not the case, but it's a very frozen society. I, I, I'm a big believer. I don't uh, agree with those who condemn all the founding fathers because of all their faults, because I feel like they were people of their time and their place. I think what they came up with was terrific yep. back in the late 1700s. Yep. But uh, it's an inefficient system for today. I'd much prefer a parliamentary a democracy. Yeah, I've wondered about that. That's interesting to hear you say that. Well, they make decisions. They make decisions and, and yeah. you can, can blame or credit someone. Like in a parliamentary system, the prime minister, he's the head of government. And that's also the legislature. So when he says or she says, you know, this set of policies that's because they have the votes in the legislative body, so they can actually pass those policies. In the American system, it's often <laughs> the case that the government is so tied up that really it leads to inaction, except in the greatest uh, you know, response to emergencies. Absolutely. I mean, this is when it starts to rile up my Silicon Valley. Uh, uh, you got to disrupt everything, right? So how do we, how do we well, disrupt these? I wish yeah. we could. I mean, yeah. it's, it's weird because I, I do. I revere the... Th forward thinking of those who crafted the Constitution at the time and the Bill of Rights at the time. Certainly the Bill of Rights, I feel, you know, stood the test of time, even though unjustly interpreted often. But as far as the way they did the separation of powers and the Senate and the mm -hmm. fact that Wyoming has as much power as California and, yeah. and uh, the fact that, you know, often because of the passage in branches in the Supreme Court, you end up with stasis. You end up with, with a frozen government uh, and the big money interests play that system like a violin to continue, you know, freezing a lot of obvious policies that have passed elsewhere. 
makes it it makes a touch and go to get things done. Like obviously, this debate about the cloture is really at, uh, in, in, back in the 1700s. Madison would have said, "What are you talking about? No, it's majority vote. Uh, that's how you vote within the Senate and the House. It's antithetical to the basic concept." Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, that's not you the know, Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so many of these things. No, well, people will treat this this cloture as if it's somehow holy, like Jesus handed it down. Uh, you know, I don't. Can know you define that for us, real fast? Well, in the Senate, it's this and a tradition. That's really all it is. A Senate rule says you need 60 votes to let the process uh, proceed. Got it. Effectively means you need a 60 uh, supermajority to pass legislation that, according to the Constitution, should be in both chambers, House and Senate, the majority of those voting members in each chamber. And uh, so now it really is minority rule. And I dealt with this in the legislature. Uh, it really violates the basic conception uh, of, of how legislatures and uh, the U.S. Congress was supposed to function. There's nothing wholly writ about it. But I feel like a lot of times somehow we get ourselves talked into thinking that there's some reverence owed. Well, no, not really. Uh, but yet there it is. It's kind of rhetorically framed rather than substantively framed. Man, so much of this is done that way. Um, well, let's move on to some some ways that maybe we can start to address this. So one of the things that I you know, feel like would be great if we can encourage is if we can make sure there, there's some sense in which I feel like the last generation didn't quite get involved in politics as much as their parents did. And that sort of uh, you know, we look at the sort of average age of our presidents and, you know, mm. Obama was a little bit of an exception, but um, yes. I feel like people got turned off from participating in politics for a while. And I fear or I, I, I'm concerned that that might happen again with, you know, millennials and Gen Z uh, and people sort of self-censoring, you know, somebody like me can never be a politician. Uh, mm. And I'd love to just hear from you. I, you know, I've, I've admired your uh, courage in you know, upholding secular values. And, you know, we know how much bias there is against um, atheists and, and sort of people who are championing secular values uh, sort of in politics. There's this common wisdom that they can't win. Uh, and just by the numbers, so much of this generation is uh, that I'd, I'd really love to sort of hear your thoughts on how, uh, you know, how real, you know, how can yeah. we convince people that they can actually do this and maybe why they should. Well, yeah. first of all, be not afraid is, you know, go boldly into elective office. And I'd encourage people to do it because it can be very positive and compassionate and meaningful, just as I believe being a business person or being a healthcare provider can be very positive and ethical and, and compassionate. Um, one thing I'd encourage people if they, uh, to think about running for office because you can help others. I mean, it sounds corny, but there really is a, a substantive possibility to help others. And, and I want to separate a couple things. One is when people think of politics, I think understandably, because most people who are observers of politics, they'll think the presidential race. And yes, there is, It's but the presidential race is kind of like thinking about, uh, I don't know, that if you like sports, that you're going to win the gold in the Olympics or something. The vast majority of people who participate in sports don't win a gold in the Olympic and aren't thinking they will. And in the legislative process, the political process in this country, I, I'm 
really proud and really enjoyed, had fun uh, coming up with legislation that helped uh, underprivileged children, that helped the environment. When I was mayor of my town, I pushed for an initiative that actually saved people money because they would weatherize their homes, which is a big deal. Yeah, awesome. You know, and, and it was really fun and it helped people actually help them in their pocketbook in a, in a couple of these cases, but also could help the environment or underprivileged people. And if you're looking to be, you know, I don't know, Barack Obama, good for you. Some people obviously make it to be president of the United States. You could be someone like that. But the vast majority of people in elective office are like on the school board, city council. And I think also people, when you say, you know, who have uh, diverse viewpoints that we've seen uh, that people say, you know, for instance, about being not religious. Well, and I'm not claiming I'm any brave person. I didn't run for office in Alabama. So, but in Maine, yeah, yeah, I think definitely there's a lot of politicians, especially more recently, who want to tout their religiosity all over uh, the United States because that's what they think is some uh, think is to their political self-interest. And all I did was like one time I did a prayer, like the, they would have the invocation at the beginning of the session. I did a secular one that had like Einstein nice. and talked about Darwin. But right on, you know, I, did, I didn't take it. You know, it wasn't like anybody went after me particularly about it. But what I think is that the, it's the perception, like you say, people sort of uh, scare themselves out of it because of what's going on. But I, you know, I've had friends and certainly conferences I've attended where I had a, a pal, uh, a woman legislator friend from Idaho. We kind of know the political reputation of Idaho way out there in right field. She happened to be an out lesbian uh, woman who uh, now she was elected from a district that worked because it was like right near the university in Idaho, you know. So it wasn't like every legislative district in Idaho would elect someone like her, but she did fine and she won. And, you know, and so I don't think people should, uh, you know, veto themselves before they've given it a shot. And I honestly think the most, it sounds corny, but the most positive and beautiful thing about elective office is you really, if you care, you can say, listen, we can make this more efficient. We can uh, help people save tax money, or we can invest money in something that's really going to help our, our, our fellow human beings. And it's really exciting. That's another thing I'd say, especially people who kind of have an entrepreneurial spirit you know, if people remember the old schoolhouse rock, you know, about the bill and all this, well, they, they leave the lobbyists out. I remember in that cartoon. So there's a lot of hurdles that maybe are mentioned, <laughs> that are mentioned yeah. in, in the, in the cartoon, but nonetheless, I got to tell you as an intellectual challenge, in addition to hoping you can do the right thing to help others, like having an idea for a bill, vetting the idea, going through the different attorneys saying, Oh, that part's unconstitutional. This part needs to be modified or, you know, legitimate reasons why legislation needs to be redrafted, yeah. going through the committee, convincing people in the committee has to win in the house, has to win in the Senate, got to get it to the governor's desk. It is like the most crazy wild board game you could ever play with human beings who are so unpredictable. I and love all that, it. That's all politicians are, are, you know, just another set of unpredictable human beings. So it's frustrating. It can be angering and infuriating, but it also can be really satisfying if you say, wow, we just passed something. And that'll help tens of thousands of people like that. And I, yeah. you know, it's a meaningful thing. So I encourage your listeners to say, I'll consider it, you know, and not be cynical, yeah. be idealistic. Well, I love that. We joke about the concept of uh, nerd baiting when you like throw out like a really hard problem and then someone just like stops in their tracks and tries to figure it out. And like, I really like the idea of kind of uh, political nerd baiting. How do we, uh, <laughs> how do various sort of geeky and, and, and nerdy types, uh, start to think about solving those puzzles of what is the legislation. We need them. We need them big time. I mean, I, I, 
like I say, I'm not claiming to be a scientist, but when I look at what these projections are for climate change, uh, it seems like there needs to be major dramatic action on all fronts pronto. Understandably, we've kind of been looking at the pandemic, which is very horrible, terrible problem, but climate change, bigger, bigger problem, more urgent, and the consequences are so vast. And so can we get people saying, no, we're going to, we're going to take this on and, and not, even though there's reasons, legitimate reasons to be cynical, to, to kind of say, I'm going to forge ahead. I'm going to get there. Because when you say about nerding your way through uh, an elective office, mm-hmm. I do think money, the system is rigged in many ways. Yeah. Uh, there are problems. But if idealistic people say, we're going to organize the hell out of this, we're going to science right. the hell out of this, we're going to use our statistical uh, skills to try to win for ideas that are both compassionate and uh, technologically forward thinking, I feel like that's that's what we need at this time. 100%. 100%. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, that's, I think one of the things that's been really neat recently is, so sometimes I'll have these conversations with people and I don't know, the last one I had was about uh, tattoo, you know, like somebody was joking, you should get a tattoo. And I was like, no, nah, you know, like maybe I'll get involved in politics someday. I should never get a tattoo. And they were like, no, don't, you know, that, that doesn't matter. Like, look at Justin Trudeau. He has a tattoo, right? You know, and it was like a random thing. But with each one of these little self-censorships, it seems like more and more of these days, there's an example of, nope, there's somebody who's like that. Nope, there's somebody who's like that. You know, nope, there's Yang right there, right? You know, he's in <laughs> politics. And so I, I think that yeah. is one of the things that's been a really cool inspiration is, you know, even if, you know, the demographic numbers aren't massive, you start to really see these inspiring examples. And I love seeing that. Yeah. And so people can join. Hey, I just got my tattoo last year. It was only a reward because I finally got a flat stomach. I've lost it in the, in the, during the course of the Did you really get a tattoo? Well, well I, I had joked for years oh, I see. that I was going to get a, a tattoo on my arm, not on my stomach, yep. um, <laughs> if I got a flat stomach. And so I thought, <laughs> all right, I'm going to do this. And it was a big hassle doing all the you know, eating the right stuff and all this. Yep. I've since lost the flat stomach. But I've got the tattoo. Hell and, yeah. And actually, it says I'm proud of my tattoo because it's it's uh, it's going slightly off topic here. I know, but it does have to do with government because uh, nice. I'm Irish background. And in 1798, you know, the Irish lost many many times to you know gain freedom from from the British Empire. But in 1798, this guy named Wolf Tone started one of the revolutions or led one of the revolutions, and he was the first guy to add. If people can picture the Irish harp. Uh, symbol. It's the only country I think that has a musical instrument as their official huh. symbol. But uh, he had equality as a slogan uh, above it, which was supposed to be the aspiration that it wasn't just you know Catholics fighting Protestants or Protestants fighting Catholics, but they were supposed to treat up everyone with this principle of uh, we accept you as you are with full equality. So I have that equality on the top of my Irish harp uh, <laughs> tattoo, and try to think of of government as as in that spirit. Because I will say to you know your listeners that despite tremendous frustration, some of the most fun moments of my life were saying, "Man, we just passed that bill." <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. I can because that is such a uh, you, like when you won that, you won that. It's like a tangible thing, a tangible difference. That's right. great. Well, thank you for sharing that tattoo. This is good. This is just one more example of uh, <laughs> we, we got to. I when we were talking about doing this episode, we were joking about just that uh, idea of it's okay to be weird in politics, and in fact, it's kind of a good <laughs> thing these days. You know, uh, I think people. Well, you look at the guy was a Fetterman running for uh, 
uh, Senate in the state of Pennsylvania. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he definitely does not have the visual profile of a typical, you know, with a big giant guy with a shaved head. Looks like he's kind of a biker that might scare you. (laughs) But, you know, but he really is doing very well. We'll see how it goes. But I just think people are much more accepting. uh, And that, I think, is sort of a positive uh, development of personal characteristics. Well, yeah, the uh, the one that we need to see some more representation on, too, is, you know, clearly gender representation uh, uh, maybe is more important than this one. But uh, at least from the men, uh, we need to see some more facial hair. uh, (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Well, hey, Abraham Lincoln. Yeah. (laughs) He he was poor. Yeah. Maybe we can try that that beer. But I I feel like uh, what I I most hope that we could get is people that uh, bring this kind of scientific ethical approach uh, to politics and and the private sector as well. I mean, the thing with both is human nature. That's the problem we face. Is human nature is uh, if you get a certain level of power, whether it's financial power or, or governmental power, it's, it's hard for people not to uh, start to feather their own nest in a way. And I think it's okay, you know, especially in the business world, to legitimately uh, feather your own nest to some degree. But there needs to be a measure of humanity that I think to some degree is, is, is being lost. Yeah. How people are being treated. Well, and it's so interesting, right? Because, you know, there's where, where my mind goes on that is, you know, like philosophy, right? Like what are we teaching as far as philosophy? And, you know, there's this sense that cracks me up in which, um, if there was a little bit more Christian values, we might reflect a little bit more on the whole rich man passing through the eye of the needle and all this kind of stuff, right? Where like, it feels like if we, if we go back to some of our uh, philosophical wisdom from the past, there is a lot to be said around this. You know what I mean? Oh, I, the Bible is a beautiful work of literature with wonderful passages. I, even though I come from, you know, Irish Catholic background, the King James Version, the Protestant so-called version of the Bible, is I think is a beautiful uh, piece of literature. The thing about it is, is that, you know, it's thousands of pages, and in truth, people pull out of it whatever they want to pull out of it, and yeah. they pull it in different directions. So you find very devout Christians who are the most caring, deeply compassionate people, and, and their faith is central to that caring and, and compassion. But you also have, and unfortunately in America, in the political spectrum, you have huge influence where uh, religious extremism, in my view, is used as a tool that undermines the functioning of a democratic society. And I worry that social media makes that easier to congregate such individuals. Like, you know, when we talked at the beginning about QAnon, yeah. uh, that's some wacky stuff. What are you smoking? <laughs> but if you can find like-minded people to believe angry, wacky stuff, you can really get a ball rolling uh, in the wrong direction. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting because it's so, it's, it's, it's a lot of the same things, right? You look at, uh, you know, something like, um, God, who am I getting to offend here? Uh, you look at something like Scientology or you look at any of these uh, things. Offend away. Yeah, I know. Yes. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, but, uh, you know, with any any sort of uh, sect that um, oftentimes one of the tactics that they'll use is once you have done ridiculous enough things, you have to then admit that you've done ridiculous, absurd things uh, or believed ridiculous, absurd things. And so I think you clearly see that with QAnon, right, is people get deeper and deeper and deeper because in order to get out, they would have to 
have the egg on their face of admitting that they were wrong for so long, you know? Um, and I've changed my mind on deep things like that before and it's hard. It's really hard. So, yeah. And I just think there's a general, uh, willingness, unfortunately. And, and I do think there is a role, uh, in the web, a responsibility that, uh, the web must take for some of this is this congregation of myriad kind of non-evidence-based views as reading how astrology, you know, gaining in, in uh, popularity. Uh, and I'm not saying there's any dark evil that necessarily arises from astrology per se, but it is the willingness to accept non-rational um, beliefs and, and accept facts that aren't real. And I do think a problem that we face is back in mid 20th century America, lots of terrible things, lots of injustice, but that there was kind of a, a, for instance, in the world of journalism, an integrity, particularly with the fairness doctrine required by the government, uh, where you didn't have Rush Limbaugh just spouting hateful nonsense. I mean, Rush Limbaugh would not exist, but for the abolition of the fairness doctrine. Uh, So you allow for yeah. for countervailing evidence. He, he was able to spout off without countervailing evidence. I know this firsthand. Um, not a lot of people know this, but growing up in Hawaii, like when I was a teenager, I was deeply, deeply conservative. And the entire reason was because the only thing that felt like it had that was intellectually interesting on the radio was Rush Limbaugh. And so I listened to a lot of Rush Limbaugh, Michael Savage, all these folks, because that was the only, like, it was that or NPR, and NPR was too boring for me as a kid. Um, (laughs) And it took a lot of really conscious, like, for global warming, I literally had to sit down once, this is in college, and I was like, I, I, like, noticed that a lot of scientists were disagreeing with me, and I just eventually had to ask myself, I was like, are you a man of science? I was like, yes. And so I, like, forced myself to read the, uh, the Royal Society of London had put out like a pamphlet on it. And it took me like a week, like, to, like finally, like sort of like tell people that I had changed my mind on it. Cause I'd been on the other side for so long. I'd had so many arguments. Well, kudos and, to you for, you know, putting yourself to that rigor, you know, facing uh, the, the viewpoint of analysis. Um, I encourage people. One thing that I, I do worry and maybe I'm wrong about it and I'm not, uh, it's not, I, I think it's for everyone because I think uh, reading has decreased whether you're 90 years old, I'm on average, whether it's 90 years old or, or 15 years old uh, with the rise of the internet. I, I want to see more deep, long reading. I'm not sure how we encourage it, but I really feel like I read a book recently, uh, Infidel and the Professor, about uh, David Hume and Adam Smith. And I just learned so much about uh, capitalism, but also about philosophy and secular philosophy and also the kindness of it. Like, I think sometimes people t- interpret uh, that if you're not religious, somehow you uh, are harsh or view the world in a harsh way. But that wasn't David Hume's perspective at all, nor Adam Smith, both of whom were very secular in their worldview, but it was it led them to a kindness, to an acceptance of others that uh, I really, I really feel like the books helped transform me in, ter- in terms of how I, I hope better view the world and better interact with my fellow uh, human beings. And it really, because I mean, you know, one of the things that happens when you stop following prescribed religion is you, like we have 
I mean, most of us, I, I feel, and almost all of us have this drive to be good people, you know? And so it really, it, you have to start thinking from first principles, like, how do I be a good person? <laughs> you know? Uh, right. And, yeah. I commend, uh, to me, something I always, this is sort of when you talk about being a good person, I feel like being a good person involves substantively helping others, not just uh, virtue signaling, if you yeah. will. You know, posting on Facebook that, you know, whatever, I'm against being mean to this or that, discriminated. That's good. I'm glad people do that. But I feel like there needs to be substantive change that makes a difference. Government, we've talked about. One of my hobbies is I love uh, obituaries. I keep track of obituaries. <laughs> and I have since I was a kid. I'm a sick, I was a sick child. But <laughs> a pattern that I've discerned and I didn't grow up in a home. They were not hostile to science, but neither of my parents had science as their forte. Um, but that you can do so much to help the world if you are a scientist. Like if you want to help the world as a politician, sometimes I think it's catch as catch can because you have to be in the right place, right time, be able to pass the right legislation. And few politicians are going to help the world in the way that, say, you know, Abraham Lincoln or Franklin Roosevelt or whoever uh, you know, because they're not going to get to that level. It's just not realistic. But it seems like a scientist, uh, so often I'll read an obituary of a scientist who came up with this new technology or this new medical procedure, and literally thousands, millions of people can be helped uh, by the, these logistical and practical steps. And I marvel that it's really a new process, 200,000 years-ish, depending on who you listen to of human beings. And really, as far as the scientific method, we're only talking a few hundred years of really rigorous scientific method. So we're just at the dawn of whatever this is. We have to guide it in an ethical direction. But I think there's an opportunity for, for, for great compassion. You know, people complain about technology, but they wouldn't want to have the medical technology from 150 years ago. That's for sure. Very much so. Very much so. And I think that that's the same for cultural technology in a lot of ways. You know, we can learn from it, but we got to keep innovating on that if we're going to have good society and if we're going to learn how to live with the new technologies, you know, um, it's, it's not enough to, to have the cultural technologies and systems and all that of the past. We have to think, uh, ethically quickly, which I don't know if we're that well equipped as a species to do, but when you talk about it, you know, Yang always is discussing this about just practical reality. He says a lot of jobs are going away because of the nature of, the progress of technology, and that's part of his, uh, you know, economic plan is to make sure people have that uh, place to go economically. But I'm also just thinking ethically, you know, what happens with CRISPR? I think there's beautiful things, and if, if CRISPR can help people with difficult health issues, then it seems to me you'd want to uh, make sure that happens. But you could also see CRISPR being used in potentially unethical ways, and you don't have a lot of time to react because somebody's going to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that he's talked about on that is um, uh, he has his part of a stump speech. He would talk about uh, the office of it was like the office of technology affairs or something like that, where we had okay. it. Right. Yeah. And then we got rid of it. It's morons. <laughs> so, no, it's just like that. No, I used to talk about that. It's just like that's what we should be spending our time on is having a technological advice on everything we do and yeah. trying to make sure we. Uh, look at the technological aspects themselves, but also the ethical aspects. How does it help human beings? The ultimate question should be, how can we make life 
more gentle and more kind for our fellow human beings, whether it's uh, economics or science, entrepreneurship yeah. or government. Yeah. And so I, yeah. I hundred percent uh, like think that we can, if we can get a more technologists and technology centers in and around the white house, that's amazing. A uh, white house. That's amazing. And I also think one of the other pushes I've been seeing coming from, I don't, do you know the uh, Truman national security project? Those folks? No, no. What's yeah. this? It's a cool group. They're kind of like a left leaning, like national security organization. Uh, been talking with them. Uh, but, um, one of the things that they've been pushing for that I appreciate is having a design center inside the White House focused on user experience design, because so much of these government services are just so terrible to use from like a like a UI UX perspective that right. it just feels like it's just feeding into this narrative of like government is broken, government doesn't work. And it's just because the websites like are terrible. <laughs> and if we can just apply some I of thought this, Obama like, was doing stuff on that. Maybe it just changed. Yeah. Well, I don't I know. He, he tried. He pushed it forward. You know, we got the um, there was another technology center out there, uh, the United States Digital Service that I think started under him. Uh, but yeah, I just think we just need to keep pushing that forward because it just feels like from a um, like it, it seems insignificant almost from a cost perspective of just getting some more design thinking in there. In the terms of value, it seems like it's going to hopefully uh, help people a lot interacting with the government. So, well, this is great. I, you know, I really and I just want to come back briefly uh, before we start wrapping up here to that, you know, encouraging people to run or sort of asking why, uh, you know, I. It's interesting the the degree to which, you know, I love if you can speak maybe to some of like the unique opportunities you feel like you had there to enact change um, or just, you know, if you were going to try to convince somebody from, you know, Gen Z to consider running for office, like, you know, what, were, what would be some of the things that you would say? Well, you can study any type of policy area that you want to study. And I think, especially if you do it Judiciously, if you do it as a real student and look at how policy works and say, geez, they could maybe do that better. There's a real opportunity in elective office where you can potentially make a change. And there's nothing more satisfying, at least in my life experience, of, of being able to do that. Like I've been able to look at mental health systems or I did downtown revitalization work and organizing through government. And really, when you become an elected official, it's sort of like you also need to draw in people from the private sector and so forth as partners and community people who are testifying in favor of legislation. So I did a lot of stuff on child nutrition. Uh -huh. I did a lot of stuff on child protection. Um, in child nutrition, this is a while back now, but uh, I worked on uh, following science in schools, basically. Uh, a lot of times, uh, again, uh, corporate influence, but a lot of fast food producers and others would work their way into school. They would call it a la carte menu, whatever that meant. But children don't really have a choice. And and what I saw that I remember the day it really worried me is I started a children's museum uh, in my city of Bangor to help revitalize the downtown of Bangor and to help children. And I shook hands. We had a, it was great. You know, like we had a big huge crowd in February, which is hard to do with our weather. Big huge sure. crowd waiting around, wrapped around the building outside, and I shook hands with every person who came in on this opening day. Nice. And I saw uh, a lot of kids who, you know, not that I'm Doctor Faircloth in it or anything, but kids who you know face pre-diabetic uh, issues and other health issues. And I said it's not their fault, not their choice. They're just kids. Uh, but when the society places situations that put children who, by the time they become adults, like 18 years old, they're already facing health issues that are significant. So you could be involved. In, and that's just one issue where I was able to uh, work on that. I worked on child abuse uh, prevention initiatives. 
protecting people from uh, physical and sexual abuse. I also really liked, I get a, uh, got a tax credit uh, and I could go on like this, but it was just really Please, fun for yeah. me, a tax credit for research and development. Cause one of the things again, nice. which maybe makes me a little different than some of my friends, cause I consider myself very progressive, but I always felt like if you're a real innovator, if you're not just, you know, sitting on the money or you're not just, uh, you know, uh, involved in something that has an exploitive way of treating its workers. But if you're saying, I'm coming up with a new product that really matters to help society, why shouldn't you get a research and development tax credit for that level of innovation? To me, when people think free market, that the, the good part of free market, what I think they're thinking about is that sort of innovative entrepreneur comes up with the I- new idea that's going to make the world better. And I, I agree, gung-ho, let's do yeah. that. Uh, and and provide tax incentives uh, for folks who engage in that. And I don't view that as any way contradictory to my, you know, my views on LGBTQ or women's rights, where I'm always, you know, quite on the left. And I also view on the environment that uh, however entrepreneurial you are, that you would say, geez, Louise, just common sense. You know, we've got to take major action. And, you know, for sure. you listening to think about the potential of public office, really, uh, to be... I think really facing the reality, it sounds dramatic, but I think now is the time. We're on the crest of a time where unless we take major action on climate change, it, it could be many, many deaths, much that would dwarf the deaths from uh, COVID-19. And that sounds scary and ominous, but I think that's that's the reality, not necessarily for me, but for people, you know, a generation or two down the line and even, you know, on the coastal areas and you know, a number of other that'll be directly affected in the next, you know, five, 10 years, not to mention the forest fires and all the rest of that, you know, so there's a chance to make a real difference when it's going to count as much as it has ever counted. Absolutely. And I also want to say too, you know, I feel like this was uh, kind of in the founding father's minds a little bit, um, but this doesn't have to be your entire life if you get involved in this too, right? You know, you can, you can go into it, you know, people have multiple careers all the time these days. And exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've seen people have done really uh, fantastic uh, things that can make a difference in, in people's lives. And I think that's the way it is with most. I have nothing against, you know, Joe Biden. He was, you know, career politician and that can be that there's lots of good uh, Franklin Roosevelt was a good career politician and did good positive things. So I don't, I don't begrudge that. On the other hand, I'm proud of being outside where I worked in different nonprofits, like I said, with the Maine Discovery Museum and things that I felt contributed to society that were not government. Uh, I had a friend of mine who said, and I I thought it was an interesting idea, and I haven't done it, uh, but I thought it was uh, an interesting challenge. He said, everybody should try to succeed in some form of public service, not necessarily elective office or working in government to say, I helped make it work better. And then do something in the nonprofit sector and say, hey, I did something in the nonprofit sector. I challenged myself to see if I could make nonprofit work in a way that really helped people. And the same in the private sector. Hmm. Say, I I tried the same. And so that you put yourself in three challenging entrepreneurial and management type situations and said, "I, I can get a result and a result that makes me gratified. To me, I feel like it's similar to art in a way that, uh, you know, I, sadly for me, I'm not uh, John Lennon or Picasso or something, but I feel like there was something about these people, they said, I'm going to create something that's really new and has a, a positive impact on humanity. And I feel like similarly, people in business and nonprofits and government should think of themselves in that way too, to do something, it sounds corny, but do something beautiful, do something that really yes. is fantastic. I like that a lot. I like that uh, figuring out how to have impact in multiple different ways like that. That is fantastic. Well, 
thank you so much uh, for your time today, Sean. Uh, before we leave, I I wonder, you know, if people care about um, getting involved or or sort of pushing forward. So, you know, if somebody was trying to to, to get involved in running for politics, uh, do you have any places where they might start or things that they might start thinking about? Or yeah, I do think it's advisable to get to know the system, get involved in you know a local political committee or maybe run for a local, say, nonpartisan office. A lot of times that is very beautiful, old-fashioned, you know, door-to-door kind of thing, which I loved. I loved door-to-door. I loved meeting people. It was interesting. I learned. I always treated it, I was the one who was learning. You know, when you go knock on somebody's door, and and I did a lot of them. And it was, I enjoyed it. And so I'd go, you know, I'd knock on Stephen King's door here in town. Nice. <laughs> and I'd also <laughs> knock on the door in some of our most, uh, you know, we face a lot of economic challenges uh, here in this part of the country and uh, meet people who really, you know, face difficult financial situations, difficult mental health situations, difficult addiction situations. And that unfortunately is, you know, a huge percentage of our society as well. And to always meet everybody with, I'm going to learn from you and a sense of, of compassion, you know, I, and I feel like that, you know, one thing, especially so much of us, we live online today, a lot of us, and I do a lot as well. And sometimes I'll see, um, you know, what they call term cancel culture and some of the things you know, they deserve the retribution they get. And, and that's fine. But I'd always encourage everybody among your listeners to say to yourself, to seek to judge your own ethics, your own life actions, according to the ethics of your great grandchildren, like try to envision what will my great grandchildren think of what I'm doing, and before you rush to judge, all right, you know somebody in 1732 did this or that uh, in a way, and I'm not saying you don't judge them, but I feel like I want to judge that person in their time, and I'm going to judge myself and say to myself, am I looking two or three generations ahead and saying, how will they look at my ethical actions? And I, and I think that a lot of times, in, in my own case, I feel like I need to do better. I need to try to do better myself before I point the figure at others. And, and that doing better means direct action, directly being involved, not preaching it on Facebook alone. Get out there and, and get your hands dirty. 100%. Hey, what is it? A moat in one's eye, right? <laughs> That's great. Um, well, just uh, to wrap up a little bit, is there any, you know, if, is there any organizations that people should look yes. at if there's, yeah, if there's ways well, that they can get involved? for me, I, I want to tout, I, I'm very much a believer in Americans United for separation of church and state. I feel that organization takes a compassionate approach to keeping religion out of government and includes religious and non-religious people in voicing that concern, which I think is, is pivotal to uh, us, us achieving a more rational and science-based uh, society. Uh, so, and I'll admit, hey, if you got me on here, uh, yeah. my uh, own organization where I'm a nonprofit. So, so I feel like you go local uh, and then national and local for me is I work in a recovery center at Maine itself faces. Uh, we were one of the top 10 overdose states. Uh, unfortunately, my city of Bangor has the top uh, overdose city in, in Maine. And then my neighborhood uh, where my nonprofit is, we work on working with people who are low income, working with people to empower them so they're involved in community change and we're working on a big neighborhood improvement project. And then finally, I think you've got to go global. So give mm-hmm. to some kind of environmental advocacy organization or run yourself for office with the mission of let's do something about climate change. Because I worry about my uh, children and grandchildren and what they're going to face unless we take action pronto, really, on all fronts. 
That's great. And speaking of the children, uh, I think you did you recently come out with a children's book as well? Is that right? Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. that's one thing I, uh, as far as if you've got listeners who are parents, I did write a children's book. I'm, I'm proud of it. Actually, it didn't sell anything. The Attack of the Theocrats at least sold some, but the <laughs> nice. general didn't sell any. But I'm proud because it was, it's an adventure fantasy book nice. that goes to this really weird planet called Earth. <laughs> and it takes kids to every continent, and it's fantasy story, but it, it offers uh, facts and reality weaved in about uh, lives and, and the geography of each continent. And if there's one thing I encourage uh, parents, not that I'm any expert at anything on this, but it's just like, get them interested in what it's like to be someplace else. Even if they've never left their town, To what is it like to live in somebody else's shoes? And if you can encourage that sense of imagination of somebody who lives in another planet, socioeconomic, skin color, gender, whatever, uh, that then you start to walk in their shoes and then have the imagination. That's really what I think it requires sort of to be the imagination to be an entrepreneur for good that's whether fantastic. you're in government well, or I, any other endeavor that sounds like a great book you know it's it might not be aimed at me but i might have to go check that out that sounds like a lot of fun <laughs> you've got friends <laughs> uh, 9 10 11 year olds that uh, age group you know somebody who knows somebody <laughs> that's that fantastic <laughs> i i will definitely recommend well, thanks again, Sean. Uh, this is great. And I just want to wish you all the best in continuing to do the awesome work that you do. Thank you. Great talking to you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Yep. 